April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Well, okay, but September is kind of cruel as well, don't you think? Yeah, true. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Christian. Hello, my name is Jonas. This week we read The Wasteland by Thomas Stearns Eliot. This is commonly called the greatest poem of the 20th century. And that's kind of a high label. Mm-hmm. And not really a deserved one, in my opinion. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll get, get to that. To that. Yeah. But yes, The Wasteland has, as I said, a reputation. It's supposed to be maybe the best poem of the 20th century. Certainly one of the most complicated ones, most discussed ones, most influential ones. And that was probably also what drew us um, to it as a kind of starter for this podcast. Because, hey, it's our first episode, so yay us! There are a few things in English literature that you can really say everyone more or less agrees that they are really important. It's probably The Wasteland and Hamlet. And And Fifty Shades of Grey. And Fifty Shades of Grey, obviously. What really drove home to me how highly regarded this poem is was when I took a class on female modernist writers. We spent the first two sessions discussing The Wasteland. And Thomas Stearns earlier doesn't sound like a female writer to me. No, he was a man. Although if he mentions uh, Tiresias in his poem, half man, half woman, that might be... But that would go too far. There's, there's, there is a theme of sexual and gender ambiguity in the poem, but still he was a guy. And so opening a class on female writers with him is a bit odd. <laughs> so at least one thing is clear. The writer of the poem was a guy. And what a guy he was. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What Actually, I don't know that much about him. He, his life wasn't as, let's say, picaresque as Ezra Pounds, for example, who is actually mentioned in the, in the epitaph... Not, not the epigram. The, the epigram. Epigram. But um, epitaph. That came a bit later for Ezra Pound. Yes. He apparently was responsible for cutting down the whole poem, making it more readable. I would like to have read the original version. If that version we have now is the kind of cut-down, simplified version, what would the original look like? Ezra Pound, also a modernist writer, of course, and I know very little about him, except that he was a fascist. And one poem that he wrote, which is called In a Station of the Metro, which simply consists of the lines, The apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. So you can see why he would maybe cut down poems and (laughs) make them shorter and more readable. Anyways, we talked about how complicated the wasteland is. And that is probably the first thing that kind of strikes you when reading this poem. And maybe it's also part of why it is such a much discussed poem. That there is simply so much work getting into it. The poem not only features several languages. If you really want to read the poem, you not only have to read English, you also have to read French, you also have to read German, you have to read Sanskrit. 
Hey, that's... Very little Sanskrit, though. Still. Still, it, it, it is featured. And what is more, these language snippets come from other works. This is an extremely intertextual poem. And that is not only a kind of gimmick, maybe, to make it more complicated, but part of the message. Because what the wasteland is, for me at least, basically about is this kind of desperate question, is it worth it? Or rather the question may be, does anything mean anything? That's what modernism is about, essentially. I think that is maybe why the poem is so highly regarded, because it, in several ways, is the quintessence of modernism in its form. It is quintessentially modernistic, but also in its content, in its themes... And so that could be considered one of the reasons for its prevalence in the study of modernism. It's certainly one poem where you can take certain lines and basically call a an anthology of modernist poetry um, after that line. For example, the famous line of a heap of broken images yes. has been quoted and quoted again and again as a kind of motto for modernist literature trying to come to terms with the loss of meaning after the first world war the more rapid lifestyle of this new century and frankly Eliot doesn't seem to like it that much does he yeah and i think that is why even though it is so incredibly modernistic this seems really really dated to me this is so incredibly old-fashioned that I I just cannot deal with this, really, because I just think, seriously, just get over yourself. Well, to me, the problem is kind of that not only is it old-fashioned, old-fashioned maybe in the sense of dated. because It's dated, not old-fashioned, dated. Yeah. All the references to um, the experiences of the First World War and many details about modern urban life, but modern, obviously, in a 1920s sense. Yeah, they don't connect to us as much, maybe. But what is more, I think, is that the tone of the poem is, despite its really complicated and modernist form, the tone is really quite conservative. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And weirdly, I feel that some of these things about then modern urban life are the ones that speak the most to me. I think the section in the poem that most interests me is the section about the woman who comes home and she has a very small apartment, so she has her clothes on the couch during the day and then she moves them off the couch to sleep mm -hmm. on, uh, on it in the night. And that is really, really interesting. I would have preferred to read a poem just about people like this, people who are sort of getting by in... The city in the 20s. But then again, Elliot probably hates these people. I think yes, he's yeah, really, yeah. really condescending towards these kind of stupid plebs that like to listen to popular music and have sex and go to the cinema and so on and don't really know the things that he thinks are important. Yeah, yeah. And that is so fucking hypocritical. Do you know what, what he did for a living? T.S. Eliot? Um, was he copywriter advertising? or uh, He was a bank clerk. Oh. I think he, was, he worked in advertising as well. But first he started out as a bank clerk. And that really comes out for me. This sort of petty bourgeois 
attitude of him. You know, you can just imagine this guy sitting in the bank and dealing with accounts in, during the day. And then he goes to the bar and meets all his uh, pretentious friends. And he writes these poems uh, that nobody really gets. And he feels really superior to all his colleagues. Yeah. And, yeah and, and that is not about people in wage-earning jobs not being able to produce great art. For example, Kafka worked in insurance and he produced great works of art, but he was just not so full of himself as Eliot seems to be. Yes, that's true. His view is certainly an elitist one. And the fear he has about losing meaning and about losing something in these modern times is the fear of some kind of self-proclaimed elite that the especially cultural high points that he quotes and quotes over and over again, Wagner and Shakespeare and Baudelaire and so on, that these lose their meaning after the war and in this industrialized and trivialized society. And that is a kind of weirdly, as we said, conservative, elitist position but it's also a very despairing one. And I think this is where the poem gets its, its strength. What Eliot does best, in my opinion, is not this kind of collage technique, the footnotes and the quotes from other places, but more when he really writes about personal feelings, and mm -hmm. the personal despair he seems to feel. And the pieces in the poem that I like the most are the ones basically where he writes about that, writes about this desolation, about walking through the city, feeling like being among the dead or the undead. This is really the world's first zombie poem, to be precise. And Mr. Gothic coming through in you. <laughs> yes. And um, I think it is obviously, as I said, endlessly quotable, many great lines. April is the cruelest month or the heap of broken images, or I will show you fear in a handful of dust. And these lines, they are not quotes. They are from Eliot's brain. He yeah. wrote them himself. And that's where I think the poem really gets its strength. There's so many great parts, really well-chosen images, really precise and effective language to convey this, this really desperate feeling. And you get the feeling that all the rest, all the quoting and so on, it's important to him, but it doesn't really translate to us as yeah. an audience. But it is really important to him. He doesn't really care about these personal things that you like and that I incidentally also like. Um, this really becomes clear in his notes because uh, he actually published The Wasteland with notes because it was so incomprehensible. And basically in the introduction to his notes, he recommends two books and says that you can only really understand The Wasteland if you have read these two books. One is on The Grail Legend by Jesse Weston, and the other is The Golden Bow by Fraser. And Fraser hated The Wasteland. He hated that his book was so popular and that everyone was talking about what a great cultural impact it had. So here's Eliot uh, saying, oh yes, well, if you want to understand this poem that I wrote, you have to read these two books. And he closes his introduction to the notes with, Anyone who is acquainted with these works will immediately recognize in the poem certain references to vegetation ceremonies. And that is just so, oh yes, well, I guess I could explain it to you, but why don't you go ahead and read all the books that I have already read because I'm so much better than you. Obviously, that seemed to be a kind of 
technique many um, poets around the turn of the century, um, roughly said, seem to choose. Um, you also have Yeats or in Germany, Stefan George, trying to be as cryptic and as um, elitist as possible. This kind of hidden meaning where you really have to interpret each line and really know all the annotations to really get what they're talking about. Yeah, and that is just so unbelievably immature and pretentious pretentiousness is really the thing that comes to mind for me and that annoys me the most about this and we are both no strangers to pretentiousness oh, no, as no, 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 uh, no, no. as many people will uh, testify and i think it really the fact that it is really pretentious that he's really pretending comes out also in the notes when he talks about uh, the imagery of tarot cards where he says that ah, yes, I used this card and then this card and then this other card that I think I made up and then this other card that I sort of half remembered. So he doesn't even put in the research to actually know what he's talking about and what he's quoting and what he's referencing. He just wants to basically show it off. But at the same time, I think that Tarot sequence shows an interesting aspect as well um, that, again, adds maybe to the strength of the poem, um, namely his use of satire. He starts off with Madame Sosostris, famous clairvoyante, had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe. Yes. So this contrast between this clairvoyante who seems to know what is going on and this air of prophecy that runs throughout the poem, that she has a bad cold. And later on, after giving her reading of the tarot cards, she says, If you see, dear Mrs. Equitone, tell her I bring the horoscope myself. One must be so careful these days. So even this air of prophecy, of knowledge, of occult knowledge is kind of subverted. And if he had treated his own position, his own fears that these references lose their meaning with the same kind of satiric intent. Irreverence. Yeah, irreverence. That's a good word. Um, it would have made the poem, I think, a lot better. Yes, definitely. I, I also underlined that line about her having the bad cold because it's just so beautifully set up and then immediately undercut. So all the old, mysterious, great things are sort of, uh, in that one line, implied to be not as great as they have been made out to be, but then he goes on being more mystical. And when you look at the time, there was so much going on at the time where people were doing that, where people were looking at these mysteries and these old certainties and mocking them. And he just very rarely does that. And it it, it seems as if he does it by accident. Yes, I had the same feeling. The things he seems to hold very dear... At least in the poem, you sometimes get the feeling that he's maybe indirectly, maybe subconsciously very ambiguous about them. For example, in the beginning of the second part, A Game of Chess, he describes in much detail the kind of surroundings of a woman's room and compares it to Greek mythology. And for him, that seems to be a description that is very full and has the same kind of relations to the rich um, cultural background that he um, at least pretends to have for his poem. But at the same time, when I read this, it seems empty. There's nothing behind it. It's just decor. There's no real meaning behind it, even though he desperately tries to find meaning in it. And at the same time, the whole central metaphor of the wasteland, this 
barren modern land where no water and water plays a, a, a giant role in the imagery of the poem where nothing can grow and there's nothing fertile but at the same time when he talks about water it is not always a positive thing death by water the title of the fourth section yes exactly and so there is a certain ambiguity um, which i again like but it gets again lost in this merciless barrage of illusions and uh, snobbery and that is really yeah kind of a pity maybe mm -hmm. yes one other thing that really sure. annoys me we've talked about how he looks for meaning in this meaningless world and how he struggles to find meaning and purpose and uh, at least partly it seems to me that he turns eastwards to find this meaning and this mystery. True. The third section is called the Fire Sermon, which he compares to the Sermon on the Mount uh, in a Buddhist context. And this whole fetishization of the East as a receptacle of mystery and of greater wisdom and of knowledge is really incredibly annoying to me because it is so untrue it is doing a disservice to the east and it is giving too much credit to the east in a way you could say because these are also just people they are as wise and as foolish as people in the west are and sort of saying oh they have deeper knowledge they have greater sure. mysteries than sure. we is at the same time, kind of racist. Obviously. I mean, yes. it's incredibly Orientalist. And... Yeah, very, yes, Orientalist. And it is also so trite. The poem ends with Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And in the notes he says, Repeated as here a formal ending to an Upanishad, the peace which passeth understanding is a feeble translation of the content of this word. And there I just say, oh, okay, okay, just shut up. You know, it's a feeble translation of the content of this word. It has so much more. When I hear Shanti, 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 I think about hippies and people walking down the main street of Heidelberg and dancing around in orange jumpsuits. And... But that is just because that has been turned meaningless by the wasteland. I think, yeah, obviously, he's, he's grasping for straws. Yeah. And um, at least he has some kind of hope. That also seems to be a very modernist take on things. Even such a grim view as Eliot's still tries to find some kind of truth, some kind of meaning, even if it is just, to him at least, the kind of foreign wisdom of the East, um, which we consider just as meaningless or meaningful as anything else. But it's just so indicative of the time and i really think it's no wonder that the modernists then also got involved with these totalitarian ideologies later on that ezra pound turned to fascism that Eliot himself uh was really fascinated by stalin that he was a great supporter of stalin's he actually he turned down animal farm he wouldn't publish it because it was too anti-stalin <laughs> so that's just these people sort of searching for meaning and clinging to straws and then somebody comes along and says here i have the meaning for you the meaning is in the race the meaning is in the class the meaning is in the revolution 
And they will follow that. They are very susceptible to that. Yes. Against the heap of broken images, they try to, as Elliot says, do something like, these fragments I have showed against my ruins. So trying to build a kind of fortress against this sea, or rather wasteland of meaninglessness, of randomness. That is the idea. Mm. And what it takes to fulfill this idea, well, each one of them had probably their own idea about it. Mm. Anyways, I think maybe unless we want to uh, discuss another central idea, we should come to the end and to yeah, our yeah. judgment about the wasteland. Um, I, I want to say something nice about the wasteland as well and okay. about Elliot because I've sort of been down on him a lot. I want to say something nice about him because I have been very rude about him and not giving him the credit he probably still deserves as one of the major poets of the 20th century. I think one thing he really does very well is creating atmosphere. Mm -hmm. He is incredibly good at evoking certain images in the reader, at least for me, even though when I read The Wasteland, I didn't particularly like it. I still felt a lot of things reading it, and there were bits of it, because it is such an episodic poem that has such diverse parts. There were some bits that really intrigued me, like the one about the woman who works in the office all day and then comes home to a small apartment. Yes, I agree with that. As I said, it presents so many different approaches and voices, and some of them you could really listen to all day. Um, mm. I sometimes wonder whether this, as you said, atmosphere, this ability to use images to immediately strike you, whether that is a kind of Poundian influence, Pound's imagist tendency, so to say. But, yeah, I don't know. I think... That is something that Elliot is really good with. Yeah. And my favorite line in the poem is in the first part, towards the end of the first part. That corpse you planted last year in your garden. Has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? Or has the sudden frost disturbed its bed? Again, and this mixture of irreverence and yet a very, yeah, almost sublime, um, interesting image. It is very dark it is very disturbing but it is so evocative and this idea of a corpse being treated like a seed for a flower or a tulip bulb and then just chatting about it uh, oh yeah do you think it will sprout or has the frost ruined it that is so intriguing and i wish it would have been more like this well as another great poet mick jagger said you can't always get what you want but you can because there's another poem which precedes the wasteland and that is the love song of j alfred prufrock mm -hmm. yes. and that to me is the much better poem even Indeed. though uh, it is often seen as the kind of preamble to the wasteland that is not as pure in style yet or is highfalutin I, I think prufrock is just that is just these evocative images where he describes the fog curling around the house and describes it really like an animal that is just the distilled good parts of the wasteland. Yes. There he also manages to convey this personal despair about a life that has been lived without much meaning, but doesn't take it to a kind of high-class elitist level and still manages to convey very yeah, existentialist notions about that. So you can't avoid the wasteland. But... 
if you want to read something that maybe at least we think you might like a bit more. Either The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock or another modernist giant, so to say, namely Ulysses by James Joyce. Obviously, many of the same things, many of the same techniques, only in novel form, but a much more positive image of modern life. Joyce sees the old images, the old ideas of religion, of culture, as something that is maybe worth leaving behind, and that there is lots and lots of meaning in every single piece of modern existence, even if it seems small and unimportant. And he definitely doesn't have the kind of negative view on uh, the plebs as Eliot does. So, at least from a sociopolitical viewpoint, Ulysses is maybe the better modernist classic you should read. So I definitely agree. You cannot avoid the wasteland, but luckily it is very short. Reading it will take you maybe a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. Or, of course, you can read Ulysses, which will take you a couple of weeks, probably. <laughs> That's a very optimistic uh, judgment. So the wasteland... Very, very important, but not a lot of fun. I think that's what we can say. That's what we can say, what we do say, and what we will say. Maybe uh, we are just as pretentious and elitist in our opinion, but hey, then you do your own podcast and criticize us for yes. doing that. And we are definitely pretentious. So that was our first episode of Outside of a Dog. We're still figuring things out at the moment, but if you Please want... Please don't shoot us. Please, please don't shoot us. Please don't shoot us if you don't like the podcast. Please don't shoot us if you do like the podcast. But do get in touch with us. And uh, how can they do that? Well, we do have an email address. Outside of a dog cast at googlemail.com. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm called A Modern Dandy. Same on Tumblr. And where can you be found, Christian? I can be found maybe in a library near you where I'm reading The Wasteland and kind of being angry about it very quietly. Uh, but I also have a blog where I write not about literature but about films. That is the vertoviandog.wordpress.com. It's also on our homepage because we do have a homepage. Yes, we have a homepage and that is outsideofadogcast.com. And we would like to thank Dennis from Science Pie, which is a great science podcast. He really helped us a lot in figuring things out about this podcast and about recording and everything. So go to sciencepie.org and listen to that podcast. So go to outsideofadogcast.com to find out more about us, more about our podcast, to listen to subsequent episodes of this podcast, and to get in touch. Recommend us to all your friends. Uh, and. Yeah, come back in two weeks for the discussion of the next book, which will be... Lolita. I'm already afraid. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com Um, how do we do this? Um, we, we really should have written some of this down. <laughs> it's okay, we'll, we'll... Okay.